Last week we studied the fall of the northern kingdom known as Israel. And remember, it was a story in contrast, because the southern kingdom had a, a God-fearing king on the throne named Hezekiah. He was one of, one of the good kings. The south had several good kings, but Hezekiah was kind of like none other and uh, brought a lot of reform uh, to Judah. And so we were meant to see all the success of Judah in contrast to the failure of all the kings of the north and the fact that the north, um, because of their idolatry, uh, God allowed them to be conquered by the nation of Assyria, taken off into captivity. And remember, the Bible said, and they will never return. Never return. Okay? Uh, the, the, the people there of Assyria, they're going to they're gonna come and resettle that, that land, that population. And uh, you, you're never going to have these Jewish people back there. So that was last week. Unfortunately, this week, the contrast ceases. Because post-Hezekiah, there's seven more kings here in the southern kingdom of Judah, and only one of them is good, and he starts off as an eight-year-old. Okay? All eight-year-olds are pretty good. All right? But Josiah ended up being a pretty good guy. Unfortunately, their idolatry reaches the level of the northern kingdoms, and God here, too, says enough is enough. And Judah will be invaded by... Uh, the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Jerusalem eventually will be laid to waste. Everything will be burned to the ground. Extremely, extremely tough time again in the nation, uh, this new nation of God. But it's got some really important lessons for us. And so this morning, join me in a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts for what the Lord might have to us as we study this time. Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, confessing that you are God and that we are not. And all too often, Father, we fall uh, not just short, but we, 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 well, more than fall short, we actually turn from you. We, we take the Almighty God, take your rightful place in our lives, and we shove other things into your spot. That's a sin of all people, not just these people. So God, today as we study this text, I pray supernaturally you would invade our hearts and that you would show us that we are these people. We're not just reading about a bunch of rebellious people in the Bible, but we're actually reading our own stories, seeing our own lives. Holy Spirit, we need you to do that for us. We won't do it on our own. <clears throat> we won't see ourselves in this story on our own. We don't like that. That's uncomfortable. But by your power, by your Spirit in us, you can do these things. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and take your place as our teacher, as our guide. Pray that you would lift up and exalt Jesus. And Jesus, as you're lifted up, that you would draw us closer to yourself and transform us into your likeness and your image. It's in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. I don't want to spend a ton of time this morning recapping everything that uh, you read, for those of you that they got all your reading done, because you, you read it. You don't need me to tell you what it, what it said. Uh, Post-Hezekiah, in the, in the in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, 
There are seven kings. Only one of them is good. His name's Josiah. He's eight when he takes over. He's a great king for a period of time. But this week was mostly uh, about a lot of misery. It was about God pronouncing judgment upon uh, Judah, upon um, Jerusalem, um, for their sins of idolatry. It's about them being conquered, being defeated, being dragged off into captivity in two separate waves. It's a sad story. We, We meet two more messengers this week. One of them is swept up in that captivity. He is he's swept up in that uh, captivity as a young priest named Ezekiel. Uh, the other is left behind to deal with what's left. And, and uh, it said that they would take the best out of society off into captivity. So you can imagine what Jeremiah is left with. <laughs> All the best is gone. He's just left with who's there. And he's got to prophesy to these people. And he's got to prophesy to uh, really an evil king who Nebuchadnezzar actually put on the throne, and he's got to prophesy to this guy. He's got to be thinking, Lord, this isn't even your guy. I mean, come on. He's got to prophesy to these people, and Jeremiah's got a tough road to hoe. And so uh, that's where we are. And in the midst of all of that tragedy, we actually learn some remarkable truths about God. Some pretty remarkable truths about ourselves. And here's the, the first one I think we need to notice this week. It's time to get this. In the story, it's time that we we realize what's going on, okay? Uh, Our hearts are prone to exchange the good things of God for lesser, incomplete counterfeits. Our hearts are prone to exchange the good things of God for lesser, incomplete counterfeits. Now, I want to take you back for a moment to the period of the Exodus, and Moses is up on the mountain, and Moses is up there, and it seems like he's there forever, because he's there for 40 days and 40 nights, and people are like, how long does it take to meet with God, right? But he wasn't just talking about one thing, God was establishing three separate systems, all for one purpose, right? Those three separate systems, he said, I'm going to give you uh, instructions on how to build the tabernacle, it's going to be the place that I'm going to dwell, and they're, they're very specific And it took a long period of time for that to happen. And he says, on top of that, um, I'm going to give you instruction for a new sacrificial system so that your sin can be atoned for. And that took a long time. And he says, now I'm going to give you a law, a, a new set of rules for you guys to live by. And you need all three of these things because I, God, am going to come down from this mountain and camp out at the very center of your lives. And if I do that without these three things, you'll all die. That's how holy I am. So God says, the purpose for this is I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I'm doing this so I can camp at the very center of your life. Now fast forward to the kingdom's division. King Solomon, the wisest man there ever was, at some point stops applying wisdom. Remember, wisdom is always meant to be applied. He stops applying it to his own heart. Marries all these women. The women drive him away from God. Idol worship slips in to this powerful nation of Israel. And the result is that the kingdom is divided. From there, the idol worship gets worse and worse and worse. Both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. And God eventually says enough. Now, why is this thing called idolatry such a grave sin? 
That's what I want you to see. Why is this thing called idolatry such a grave sin? Because when we idolize things, the dew or, or the rain, the sun or the moon, our, our career or, or this thing called love, possessions or people, when we idolize things, as, as Timothy Keller says, our hearts deify them. Our hearts place them at the very center of our, our lives because we think that those things will bring us uh, fulfillment, significance, security, safety. And so our hearts by deifying these things and putting these things, these idols at the center of our lives, actually put them in the place that God intends to camp out. It's why it's such a grave sin. It's why it's such a grave sin. In other words, our hearts put those things in the place that God is supposed to be camping out. This was the great sin of the nation of Israel. I pray this morning that we see our own sin here as well. Jeremiah chapter 2, um, verse 11 through 13 on the screen, God speaking to his people. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not actually gods at all. But my people have exchanged. Okay? Think, think about this, right? You have been given an amazing gift, it's priceless. And here you are in line at Walmart without a receipt trying to take it back. You have exchanged. You have taken something priceless and you're standing in line at customer service, he says. You've exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have exchanged the glory of God. They have exchanged God. They have exchanged living water for worthless idols, cheap substitutes, broken cisterns. Now, most of us don't Remember what a cistern is. It's not something we commonly use, thank goodness. But rain was scarce and often hard to come by in this region. And so they would dig great pits in the ground. And they would often use, whether it was clay or plaster, to kind of seal the edges of this. And uh, when it would rain, they would hold water. They'd have, make, make some runoff into this place, and it would hold water. There's only one uh, couple problems, really. Uh, one, there was, there was no way out for that water other than bringing it up, and so it would often just sit and say stagnant. It could turn stagnant very easily over a period of time because there was no circulation in it, and so often that water could, could grow stale, could grow stagnant. The other problem with these things is that they, the, the ground would shift and move, and you're talking about clay. They, they would constantly crack, and you'd just have no water at all. And God says, here's, here's how grave your sin is. I just want you to see the picture. I, God, the spring of living water, have come down to be the center of your life. That the center of your life would be a source of everlasting water. And you have chosen instead 
to go dig in the dirt and to make a cistern where the water will either be stagnant or where it will crack and there will be no water at all. That's what you've exchanged, okay? I want you to see it this morning. It's a, it's a big deal. This, this great problem, uh, this is the great problem with the people in the story so far, and it's our problem too, right? And, and, and the problem isn't a lack of rules. That, that, that's not, we, we, don't, we don't need more, but we just had a few more rules. That's what the Jews thought at one point. I just, I just make a few more rules. And, and, that, and that, that doesn't work because we can't even obey the simplest commands, right? And, and, and the problem isn't a lack of government or, or rulership because the people that we elect to rule over us is just as fragile and fail as often as we do, right? And, and, and the lack isn't that we don't hear from God because God constantly speaks to us. We just don't want to listen. See, what we discover at this point in the story is that the problem has nothing to do with anything external, but the true problem of humanity lies within. The problem with humanity is the human heart. It's a problem of the heart. Our hearts get set on things below. We exalt and we deify them. We put them in the place of God, the very center of our lives. We exchange God who, who, is, who is sovereign and perfect and good. We, we exchange God who is ultimate for lesser things. Good things, but lesser things. We exchange ultimate God for things like security or love or success or education or family or entertainment. And though those lesser things are good, those lesser things are never meant to be ultimate things. Those lesser things are never meant to sit at the center of our lives. And this is the great problem of the story. It's going to have to be overcome. So you've got to get that now. This problem is going to have to be overcome. If, if, if we are going to be brought back to God, which is what we've been promised since the beginning of this story, this problem, the human heart, something's going to have to be done here, okay? That's what we learn as we begin to study the words of Jeremiah this week, okay? Number two. Second lesson this morning. God is completely just and gracious. God is completely just and gracious. Now, this is a really tough concept for us because uh, we can't pull this off, right? Uh, as parents, those of you that have been there and done that, um, you, you know you are either the good cop or the bad cop. You don't get to be both, right? That's how it works. So either, and, and some of you, you had, you had stationary roles uh, as you had kids. Uh, for many, the husband was always the bad cop, right? Get home from work, you better wait till your father gets home. You had to get up and you always had to be the bad cop. You didn't want to come home and be the bad cop. Mom has already set you up to be the bad cop. There's only one problem with that. Eventually, your kids will, will clue on to the fact that that's the bad cop, here's the good cop, and they'll, they'll play you against one, one another. It happens. So the best thing to do is to switch it up. Never let the children know who is the good cop or the bad. You may even want to draw straws every day. And don't tell them who the good cop or the bad cop's going to be. Right? Every scenario, kid gets in trouble and you just, you have it, you, you pit. All right, okay, let's not tell them. And then you just, you, you play it out that way. Either way, the children are in trouble because we're all cops, right? All on the same force, in fact. It's really good. Uh, now, now, listen, I, I say that there is always a problem with illustrations. And this, this illustration has a grave problem, too. Um, because, because the truth is, the Bible, when it talks about discipline, says all discipline is good. 
right? All, all discipline is good. In fact, it even calls discipline loving, so there can't really be a bad cop. But, but, but the point of, of the illustration is that, guys, we, in our limited capacity as humans, we don't have the ability to, to do both these things. We can't be just and gracious uh, at the same time. We can't because we're limited. We have to be one or the other, but God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. God is, is always both completely. God is always both completely. So God is, is always just, and he is always gracious. And I, I want to show you how this works uh, by ruining one of your favorite Bible verses, okay? So uh, here we go. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. All right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That is so good. That's so good. That's a great verse. Man, I'd like, as, as James Harkins isn't here in the early service. I'd tell, that's a tattoo-worthy verse right there, right? He doesn't like it when I say that. Uh, that. That's the one, right? Oh, man, this is so good. Man, God has a plan for me. It's to prosper me. It's not to harm me. It's to give me hope in the future. That is beautiful. And you read on, it gets better, right? And, and then you will call on me and come to me and pray to me, and I'm going to listen. Okay, yes, God is going to listen to me and go on to, to 13. It says, it says this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. This is great. Let me put all these things together. God has a great plan for me. That plan is, is, is full of hope and a future. It's to prosper me. It's not to harm me. Yeah, God's going to be available to me. I can, I can pray to him. I can talk to him. He's going to listen. And when I really seek him out, I'm always going to find him. This is great truth, right? That's, that, that is a gracious promise. It's a gracious promise. It's only one problem. Somebody says, now, pastor, does that apply to me? Absolutely applies to you. It does. But so does the context of the situation. Because that promise is made in the context of Babylonian captivity for the people of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah is actually writing the captives this promise of God. And, and this promise is made underneath the umbrella. Jeremiah 29, 11, 12 and 13 is underneath the umbrella of Jeremiah 29, 10. In the context, it reads this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans that you prosper you, give you hope in the future. That's the context. That's the context. And so, so in context, what God is saying is, listen, I have a good, gracious, awesome plan for you, but it's going to hurt a little. For 70 years, it's going to hurt. For 70 years, this is going to hurt, but I, I need you to know that it is for your betterment. It is for your good. You, you're not going to enjoy all of this. Babylon's not going to be great for you. It's not going to be awesome that you're not in your homeland, but this is actually better for you. I'm going to use this for good, for I know what I am doing because I am God and you need this. And it's only here in captivity, according to Jewish historians, that we believe the Israelites finally kick this false god habit, this idolatry. It's here in the midst of the captivity that the scribes rise and take a significant place amongst these people. It's here because they don't have a temple to worship in that what we would think of as the local church, the synagogues, are birthed. It's here. God says, I've got a great plan for you. But that plan 
is not removed from my just nature. Okay? So, so, guys, listen, if, if you commit a crime and you stand before a judge and the judge sentences you, you were justly sentenced for your crime. Justly sentenced, right? The Bible says every authority has been placed over us by God himself. That's a just sentence, okay? So God's not unjust. God's completely just. The, the, his children are going to be disciplined for 70 years, and yet he says this, and I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you and to give you hope and a future. This is going to hurt a little, but it is for your good. God is completely just and gracious. He is, okay? It's a big, big deal. Number three. Number three. Last thing we learn comes from the second prophet, uh, Ezekiel. Those first two lessons came from Jeremiah. Number three, God will have to give us a heart transplant. God is going to have to give us a, a, a heart transplant. So we know that in the upper story, um, there is one who is coming that is going to bring us back to God. Now the question is, how is he going to bring us back to God? How, how, how is the one that's coming? Now we learned last week, um, as, as we studied Isaiah, uh, that this one that was coming is going to be a suffering servant. We've identified him, this side of the New Testament, this is going to be Jesus, right? Jesus is going to come, he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to live a perfect life, he's going to suffer for our sake by his wounds, we are going to be healed, okay, by, by, his, by his perfect life, death, and resurrection, somehow he's going to bring us back to God. But how is he going to bring us back to God when our primary problem is our hearts, that our hearts are deceitful above all else, that they are beyond cure, right? How, how is he going to bring back humanity that is so stuck and mired in sin that our hearts actually betray us and exchange the glory of God for cheap counterfeits? How is the promised one going to do this? What is going to transpire? That, how, how's Jesus going to fix that? That's the, that's the question. How's Jesus going to fix that? And Ezekiel actually tells us. He paints a picture. What God is going to do for the exiles, he's going to do in the heart of every person that comes to saving faith in him. And it's all going to be from God. Okay? I'm in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you want to open your Bibles. You didn't bring one, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm going to start in verse 22 and read through verse 28. Ezekiel chapter 36, I'm going to read from verse 22 through verse 28. If you brought your copy of the story, it's also on the bottom of page 245 reading on to page 246. Uh, Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22, reading through 28. It's also the paragraph that's at the bottom of page 245 of your stories, reading on to page 246. And this is what it says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you back from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers and will be my people and I will be your God. And this is a picture of what God does when he brings us to faith in Christ. He gathers us back from our, our, our wandering wayward ways. He cleanses us from our sin. He removes our dead heart of stone, the heart that idolizes the things of the world rather than the God that created them. He puts a new heart within us and then he fills us with his spirit. That's capital S, by the way, that with, with, with his, himself. God actually puts his own spirit within us so that we will want to keep the law of God, not that we will always do it perfectly, but we will have a desire that we never had before to worship God, to honor him in all that we do, and to serve him and to put he in his kingdom first and foremost above all things. And the Bible says this will be a great work of God on our behalf for his glory. God will do these things. The law couldn't change Our heart problem. Neither could the kings. Nor the prophets. Oh but God. Oh but God. God will. God will. That is what happens to a person when they come to faith in Christ. They pass from death to life. They they, they become spiritual beings. Jesus would say to Nicodemus. They're born again. (laughs) They're born again. Their dead hearts of stone become new living hearts that beat for God. It's called a second birth. And that's where the story's headed. It's got to. It's got to. Our hearts are so wayward that they have exchanged the glory of God for cheap counterfeits. So God must deal with the hearts of men. That's where the story must head, okay? How, how do we uh, unpack these truths and take them home this week? Uh, I think there's some, some good application for us. Number one, I think the challenge uh, for those of us here, even those of us that know Christ, I need you to hear me, even this new heart of flesh deals with this, this sinful flesh it's in, right? This, this new heart that God has given me still uh, falls unto the ways of the world, still prone to sin, prone to wandering. Uh, I think the first challenge for us is to stop settling for cisterns. No more cheap substitutes. I listened to a sermon the other uh, few weeks ago, and uh, a guy was uh, overseas and in, in, in a much very, very much different culture, and he said, when you walked into the house, there was an idol set up uh, in a place of prominence, and every, the burning incense on this idol, Every piece of furniture in the house is pointed to face 
the idol. And he, he said, when I walked in, I thought to myself, this is, this is ludicrous. This is ridiculous. And then he got home and sat on his couch and realized how every piece of furniture was facing the television. What are we settling for? We've got living water. We, we have an invitation to be a part of the greatest story ever told. People are out there searching for significance. You want significance. You have an invitation to make a difference for eternity. You do. You're just wasting it sitting on your couch. That's what we're doing. I, I just want to be, be real. I want to be honest, right? I mean, that, that's what we're doing. We all have jobs that we have to do. We have to pay bills. We, we have tons of time we can do other things with, Right? Well, I just—I mean, I, I can't—I can't do any of this. I got to clean the house for crying out loud. It's driving me crazy. Wow. Right. So I, what, what I'm going to challenge—I I don't know, have no idea what your heart has settled on, but I, I could almost guarantee everybody in this room, at some point in their heart, something you have exalted a lesser thing to an ultimate place. And you know it because it is the thing that stresses you out the most in life. Cleanliness. Right? Financial security. Safety. Well, our alarm system and this and that. Oh, my gosh. Right? I mean, so, so, really? Really? Government. Oh, the government shut down. I don't know what we're going to do. I got some suggestions. <clears throat> whole nother sidebar. If the government shuts down, do we get to keep our taxes? I'm just wondering. Um, works for me. Stop settling for cisterns. So we've got to start there. We've got to start there. We have a spring of living water. God's called us into an entirely different kind of life. We've got to stop building cisterns. Got to, okay? Uh, number two. Number two. Um, we need to learn to see discipline as part of God's plan. Okay? Listen, Jeremiah 29, 11 is for you. It is. It is for you under the umbrella of Jeremiah 29, 10. Okay? You can't complain about the discipline that God brings in your life when it's actually meant for your betterment, for your good. As Alan said earlier, for your righteousness. God, God, if we're there and we're at a point that God is not allowing us to do something, he may not be allowing us to do something because he's actually making us a better person so that we will eventually be able to do something. Babylon's not fun. It's not. But God is with you. Not alone. God is with you. He's doing something in you. He's, he's making you the kind of person you need to be. And listen, I'm not saying it's going to last for 70 years. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be 70 days, though. Some of you have been in it for 70 weeks. You said, man, it is, wow. It's been a long year and a half. Okay? But what has God been teaching you? Can you see God's hand in it? Don't think that God has forsaken you. 
For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. God was not absent during your season of suffering. God was working during your season of suffering. You've got to see it. Okay? You've got to see it. Number three. I think the call is to receive the life of God. Um, I'm going to talk about that on two levels. One, if you're here and you're not a, a Christian, the, the Bible says, I'm not trying to offend you, the Bible just says you're dead. I, I mean, not physically. Physically, you're clearly here. Uh, you know, I, some of you, when you had the flu, you thought you were dead. You're, you're still physically with us, Okay. Uh, and uh, I know you barely, barely made it, some of you, but uh, that, that's not what, but the Bible says spiritually, your, heart, your heart's dead. I'm not trying to offend you. This is the word of God from, from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. That's, that's where we begin. And with, with these hearts of stone that are completely dead to the things of God. And so if that's you and you've never received Christ, uh, I want you to know there is a reason that you're here today. You, you, you can't change your heart. God has to do it. But God is the one that probably brought your butt here. Because you didn't want to be here. So God got you out of bed. He got you here. He got you here for a reason. And the reason he got you here is he wants to bring you to life. He wants to bring you to life. He doesn't want you to be dead. He made you in his image. He made you to be with him. He made you to experience living water and abundant life. God has this for you. But you have to receive it. You have to receive the gift of God. It's there. It's available. Somebody says, Pastor, how do I do that? How, how do I receive Jesus? It's not as hard as you think. God, I need you. Jesus, I hear that you are life, and I know that I'm not experiencing life. Would you come into my life and, and, and change me, make me new, bring me to life? Something like that. Just, it doesn't have to be even those words. Just simple. Save me. God will honor that prayer, okay? But for some of you, you're Christians, but you're not experiencing life. You're saved. You're no longer in Egypt, but you're walking around in the wilderness, right? We talk about wandering. You're not experiencing abundance, right? And, 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 and so what I, what I say to you is I think sometimes we settle for that valley of the dry bones. I mean, I mean that's some of us. Some of us are literally, we're, we're just walking around and we are so dry. Would you, would you describe yourself like spiritually, I am just dry. Listen, we serve a God has the power to say, all right, dry bones, get up. Get up. Now, now there's flesh. Now there's sin. You now there's, And God will do that for you every single day. You, it doesn't matter how you feel when you put your feet on the floor because sometimes we don't feel like it. But God, who is the God of heaven and earth, who, who literally speaks things into being, who fills us with his spirit, has the ability to say to the driest people ever, come to life today. Come to life today. Stand up and be a conqueror today. Today, go overcome the feelings today. Today, go face the problems today. And I am with you and I am for you. I wonder, would, would you let God do that with you today? Would you let God take you, dry Christian, and say, hey, come to life. Stand up. Start to serve. Stop wallowing in the valley. Clanging around, hoping somebody will hear you. Get up. Start living. Start living. Pray with me this morning. Father, we love you.
Thank you for your word. Pray that you would do these things in us. It's what we need. Lord, um, God, would you forgive us for the grave sin of idolatry? For the exchanges that we have made when we have taken you, the ultimate thing, the eternal God who loves us, who, who provides us with amazing things, and we have exchanged you for lesser things, for the cisterns that we have dug, and, and for the way we've gotten used to them, God. I don't want that water anymore. I don't, I don't want stagnation anymore, God. I want to I follow hard after you. I want, I, want, I want your power flowing through me daily. I want to walk close to you again. God, please. Lord, for those that have not seen your hand in the season of suffering, I pray that they would understand the promise of Jeremiah 29, 10 through 13. This may hurt a little, but it is for your good. And they might see that if there is discipline, it is because there is more love. Because you love them so much that you do not want to just let them go and continue in their sin. God, for those that need to come to life today, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, would they understand your hand has brought them here? Your spirit has put them in these seats. And God, today, would they simply say to you, please come into my life. Please come into my life and take control. For every Christian that is tired of being dry and is ready to have your power surging through them again, I pray they would hear your call, come alive. Come alive today. Love you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.